Happy early Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope your travel plans aren't too uh, laborious. Um, hey, my name is Will. If you're a guest here with us this morning, I want to give you a special welcome. Uh, I'm on staff here with the church, and uh, it'd be great to meet you after the service, so please feel free to come and grab me. Uh, this week, we're going to be back in John 4, so if you brought your Bibles along, let me invite you to turn there. And if you, don't, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have plenty here, and we'd love for you to be able to ring, read along with us, so just raise your hand if you'd like to have a Bible, and someone will pass one of those along to you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please feel free to take that as well. We'd love for you to have that. And as I said last week, we're in the book of John, and I'd invite you, if you don't have a Bible, take that thing home and read the rest of this book, because uh, I think you'd be really encouraged by it. So um, as you guys are turning there, I'm going to uh, pray, and then we'll read this morning's passage. Lord, we uh, are so thankful to be here this morning. Um, We thank you that you never leave our side. Um, We thank you that height, nor depth, nor anything else could ever pull us from you, from your love, and that is secure in your Son. We thank you that though there was one way by which we could be saved, and only one, through the sacrifice of your Son, you freely gave him so that we could be saved, and you didn't withhold that from us. And so we just glory in that this morning, that we are your sons and daughters because of Christ. And we also recognize that while we share in that wonderful inheritance, there is a world around us that doesn't. And in this passage, in just a few minutes, Jesus, you're going to say that, that your food is to do the will of the, your bread is to do the will of the Father and to complete the work that you had given him. And I just can't help but wonder, Lord, what might happen if us corporately as a church had the same longing that said our, our food, the thing that energizes us and gives us life is to serve you in this world and to make a difference for you in this world. What might that look like in this city and around the world? And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would stir up in us a longing uh, to proclaim Jesus to bring this reconciling hope that takes broken people and adopts them into the family of God, that you would take that reality um, and, and, and it would go out from these, from these walls and into this world. And so would you do that and would you do it for Jesus' sake, I pray in his name. Amen. All right, let me read John 4. We're at the second half of the woman at the well. And we're going to start in verse 27. It says, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat. That you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another. Has has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months. And then comes the harvest. Look I tell you. Lift up your eyes. And see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages. And gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is God's word to us this morning. Uh, So here we are, we're in the second part of our series on this encounter with the woman at the well. And we're looking at the second half of the story that people often overlook. Um, They see this great conversation that she has, but fail to realize that right after that, she went back to her town and told everyone she could about this discussion she had just had with Jesus. And so she essentially has this deep, heart-to-heart, soul-satisfying conversation uh, with him. And and immediately she tries to tell everyone in her town about this man, Jesus. She essentially goes from experiencing worship that satisfies to automatically sharing who she now worships with everyone else in Samaria, in the Samaritan village. And there seems to be this chain reaction in the human experience that when we truly love something, when we truly delight in it, when we truly worship, we want to share that thing with other people. Because worship that satisfies is worship that's shared. You can do an interesting little kind of social experiment next time you're in a group setting. They say that if you're, you're with a group of people and there's a moment of laughter in that, in that group, you'll almost automatically make eye contact with the person in that group that you feel most comfortable with. You, just, you experience this moment of laughter and you look up and you'll just make eye contact. And just through that subtle act of, of connecting with your eyes, you're experiencing that joy together. We, we automatically want to share the things that we love. There's this innate desire in the human soul to share the things that we love, that we delight in, and that we worship. And it seems to happen automatically. When we're struck or captivated by something, we seek people to share that with. And it doesn't need any provoking or encouragement. I think it's very interesting that no one had to tell this woman to go back to Samaria and tell everyone about Jesus. She just did it by nature. She has this worship encounter with him. She drops her water jug and runs back to the town to tell everyone. And this is a type of behavior that you often see with new new believers. They often share Jesus even through questionable means uh, with a ton of passion for Jesus and not always a ton of wisdom in how they go about sharing him with others. Um, I could even speak for myself on this. Um, If you didn't know, I became a believer around the time I was 16. And prior to that, I was a complete train wreck. Uh, drugs, uh, completely rebellious towards God, just an overall mess. But Jesus entered into my life and completely changed it and, and really became similar to this woman, just this central focus of my life. And I ended up coming back uh, up here to the area. I wasn't living here at the time uh, for a couple weeks, and I needed to make a little extra money. And my dad worked nearby at this medical research facility, and he was able to get me a job there. Um, not doing medical research, uh, definitely that was not me. My, my expertise were, were more in the janitorial uh, department. And uh, so, but in this company, there was this whiteboard uh, kind of in the hallway that everyone would see as they walked by. And on it, it would kind of have tasks for the day that needed to get done. But there was this spot for like inspirational quotes, like that they would put stuff like, there's no I in team, like that kind of stuff for uh, the people who worked there. And, and I noticed uh, that it hadn't been changed in a few days. And so I took it upon myself to put a new quote on there. And the quote I thought of was from a guy named Leonard Ravenhill. 
Um, have any of you heard of Leonard Ravenhill before? Anyone here? Maybe one or two people? Um, basically, if you can just think of Joel Olstein and then the exact opposite of that, that's, that's what Leonard Ravenhill is like. And the, the quote that I chose from him that I thought could uh, inspire the company was, uh, it's a good one, actually. It's, is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? And awesome quote, great quote. I thought it was inspiring. The people who ran the company didn't, quite th- didn't think it was quite as inspiring as I did. And so the next day they called me in, uh, the, the director of the whole place, uh, and he sat me down with my dad, and we kind of had this heart-to-heart like, Will, you cannot use our inspirational whiteboard to proselytize uh, the, the, the medical research company here. That's, just, that's not like, like proper uh, professional et- etiquette. Um, and so... Really, man, I walked out of that pretty embarrassed, and like that was a foolish thing to do anyway, because like no one is going to come to meet Jesus through something that I white, write on a whiteboard. And honestly, I wish like the two Americans that are concerned with their Starbucks cups would realize the same thing. Um, so, so I've learned that like whiteboard proselytizing uh, isn't a, an effective way to share the gospel. But what saddens me is that now, many years later, while I'm much more mature, something that I don't do a whole lot of anymore is share Jesus at all. At least not with the enthusiasm and the passion and the eagerness that I once did. Uh, and, and I think the reason that I'm not sharing him like that is because I'm not worshiping him like I did back then or like the woman at the well was. I don't look to him as the one who satisfies the longing of my soul, longings of my soul. He isn't to me this deep, delightful treasure that I look to above all else. And I think something happens to us when we run in Christian circles long enough that, du- that just dulls this innate desire to share Jesus with others. We get comfortable, distracted, and disengaged with both the worship of Jesus and the sharing of that worship with others. I think we need to recognize that it is entirely possible to be surrounded by Christian things, to be at church every Sunday and at community group, even reading our Bibles, all the while having our heart disengaged from God and from his purposes in the world. That's that's an all too common reality that we can all fall into. And we have a laundry list of excuses. I have a laundry list of excuses for why this is the case. Well, I'm just so busy right now. Otherwise, I'd probably share Jesus more. Or uh, it's just not very realistic in this season of life to be engaged in this. Or I don't even know how to start the conversation. And what if I say something stupid? And just the list goes on of things and reasons why we're not sharing the one we worship. But I think the real issue is that we're not truly worshiping Jesus, and so we have no interest in sharing him. Because by nature, in an automatic fashion, we share the things that we love. We share the things that we delight in. And I think if we were really delighting in him, like the woman at the well was, sharing him with others would be an automatic goal of our day-to-day lives. And so my, my hope for us at the second half of this story is simply that we would be helped by this woman's example. That, that we would consider her example as someone who, who shared what she worshipped and help, uh, helped others to do the same. And that, that, that we, would, we would do the same in our own context. And I just, just want to recognize, I know sometimes in church when we talk about evangelism, it can feel a little bit like a trip to the dentist. In this regard, like when you go to the dentist, you already know you're not flossing enough and like you're eating too much junk. Like so sitting in the chair is really just like an hour long, just being made aware of all the things that you're doing wrong. 
And like, man, I can definitely identify that sometimes when we talk about evangelism in the church, like it can be like, man, I know I'm not sharing the gospel like I should be. I know I'm failing in this. And so it's kind of just sitting there and feeling condemned and really walking out with, with not a whole lot of uh, eagerness to change that. Um, but, but my hope this morning is that we wouldn't be condemned, but that we would actually be helped to do this better as a community. And I think this story is uh, going to help us with that. Um, I also want to identify before we jump in here, it's not lost on me that there are many of you gathered here this morning and you're not a Christian or you would describe yourself as not particularly religious or more of a secular person and you have doubts about the claims of Christianity. And I can't help but think if this is kind of an awkward deal as we discuss sharing uh, uh, with other people uh, who don't have the same commitment to Jesus that we do. Um, And so I just wanted to say a couple things in light of that. First of all, if you have doubts and questions about Jesus, you are welcome here. And uh, we actually welcome a dialogue about, about those doubts and questions. Uh, but, but secondly, I just want to say that as we discuss sharing our faith in Jesus with others, this isn't a project for us or something that gets us points with God. But, but I think the heart of it is this, is that many of us sat in the same seats where you're sitting this morning with many of the same doubts and same skepticisms that you hold. But Jesus has worked in our life in such a way uh, that he's changed everything for us. Um, And so at the heart of it is us just sharing someone that we deeply love and who set us free. And so this isn't about, our aim isn't about manipulation or, or cramming Bible down our throat, but simply to talk about someone that we deeply love and, and about how he's, how he's worked in our lives. And so just know, if you're not a believer, man, you are welcome here. Um, and and uh, that, that's our aim for you. And so zooming back out for all of us, my prayer for us as a family this morning is that we would find motivation and help from this woman's example to be the kind of person, person that naturally shares the love that we have for Jesus with others. And that as we see her, we would realize we're not looking at a professional here, but someone who, who loved her Lord and wanted, her, wanted to share him with others. And, and once again, my prayer is that we would be encouraged by that. And so as we approach this passage, how I want to break it up is just by asking a few questions of it. The, the first thing that I want to ask as we approach it is, why does this woman seem to be so engaged with sharing her worship while the disciples seem so distracted and indifferent to it? After that, I want to ask, what help is there for us, for those of us uh, who struggle in sharing the one we worship with others in this story? How can this story help us? And then lastly, I want to ask, what's the method by which we share the one that we worship? What's, What's God's appointed means through which we share the one we worship? And so that's how I want to handle it this morning. And we'll start with the first question. Why does she seem so engaged with this while the disciples seems so indifferent to it. As we look uh, back at the story from last week, Jesus ends the conversation with her and explains that he's the Messiah. He's this anticipated king from the Old Testament. And out of excitement and joy from the encounter she just had with Jesus, she leaves her water jug and goes back to the village where she's known as a moral outcast and begins to share him with everyone. She's set up before us by John as this prototypical example of someone who encounters Jesus in such a way that she wants to share him with everyone she knows. She's she's being set up as this example of someone who eagerly shares the Savior that she now worships. Meanwhile, on the other hand, with the disciples, we get a rather different example. 
When they come back and they see Jesus talking with this woman, they're surprised and perplexed that he's speaking with her. And in verse 27, it says uh, that they were that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. And the word marveled there is the same word that's used when Jesus would perform a miracle and people would see it. They're just awestruck that he's having this conversation with her. And they're astonished um, that, that he would speak with her. And that, that reveals their own prejudice for one, but two, their own distraction from the mission that they're supposed to be engaged with. And so we're starting to see how distracted they are and they move past the conversation with the woman and begin talking about food. And so they say, Jesus, Rabbi, eat. Uh, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so at this moment, we have a lost woman who just had an encounter with Jesus that changed her life. Revival is about to break out back in the Samaritan village. And the disciples are like, this seems like an opportune time for a picnic. They're, they're totally disengaged, totally distracted with the importance of what's going on here. And so with these two different examples, John is essentially saying to us, here's what it looks like to be engaged in the worship, in, in the sharing of our worship of Jesus. And here's what it looks like to be distracted from it. He's lifting up the woman, the town's moral outcast who just got redeemed from her lifelong adulterous pursuits as an example of someone who's rightly sharing Jesus, while the disciples, on the other hand, who walk with Jesus every day and know lots of Bible verses as an example of how not to share Jesus. You basically have 12 seminary students and then one redeemed moral outcast. And John is saying, be like the redeemed moral outcast here. It's like the direct TV commercial, if you've seen. Uh, the, uh, it's like, uh, hi, I'm Tony Romo, and I have direct TV. And the other one is, hi, I'm arts and craftsy Tony Romo, and I have cable. Be like this Tony Romo. There's just two examples. One is being lifted up as, as, the, as the one we should follow. And so to our question, why does she seem so engaged with this while the disciples seem indifferent? Where does she find this motivational fuel to go back to the town and share Jesus with everyone she knew? And I think what John is going to lay before us is that she wanted to share Jesus with everyone she knew because she knew that in him she was fully known and yet she was fully loved. She was fully known and she was fully loved. Look what she says in verse 29. She goes back after speaking with Jesus to her town and says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, this is a surprising way that you would go about sharing Jesus with other people. If I was uh, going to go back to my city and tell them that I had found the almighty Messiah, I probably would have chosen a different method here. I might say something like, come see the man who can perform miracles, or come see a man who has supernatural knowledge, or uh, come see the Messiah who promises to set us free from oppression and to prosper us. I don't think I'd say, come see a man who knows all my baggage. That's actually a man that I'd prefer you not to come and see. Can you imagine what it would be like for someone to know every single shameful thing you've ever done? Even a step further, someone who knows all of your thoughts and all of your motivations. What if someone knew all of that and they prepared for us a nice PowerPoint presentation that they could present to the church on the screen behind me of all your thoughts and all of your actions for the last month. Like, if, if that were the case, you, you might find a new church, perhaps a new country to live in. Like, that, that's, uh, you know, 
That's not something that we would want to be advertised, not something that we would want to be seen. Our shame is something that we conceal, something that we keep, not something that we, sh- that we share openly. Literally, as I was preparing this point, I hopped on Twitter for a second, and just then, Charlie Sheen had just come out and announced to the world that he was HIV positive. And so I hopped over and watched the, the brief interview where he shared that. And uh, this, this sharing with the world was not something that he wanted to do. His hand was forced in it um, because through all the years of partying, uh, people would come in. There was one woman in particular that saw his medication uh, for his illness, took a picture of it with her phone and threatened, if you don't uh, pay up big, I'm going to share this thing with the world. And so in this interview, he goes on to explain that he spent millions of dollars concealing from the world the fact that he had this illness. And what's unique about HIV is that they explained in the interview is that it carries with it a, a stigma of shame, that, that there's, there's just a, a shamefulness about it that he wanted to keep concealed from the world. And so as I'm preparing this point about being fully known, I can't help but think to myself, that's a picture of what we do with our shame. We don't, we don't uh, broadcast it, we conceal it and we hide it. It's a scary thing to be fully known, for someone to see all of our motives and all of our thoughts and all of our actions. We think if, if someone knew everything about me, there's no way they would accept me. But in Jesus, that's what he had. Just like he could peer into the broken relationships of the woman at the well, he can look into our own shame and brokenness. And this is what he says. I see all of it. And I love you more than you can imagine. I don't just see all of you and tolerate you. I fully know you and I fully love you. That's the kind of love you and I have never experienced. To to be fully seen by someone and, and loved more than we could imagine. To be fully known to be, or to be fully loved and not to be fully known is just superficial. But to be fully known without being fully loved, that's just to be condemned. But to be fully known and fully loved, that, my friends, is what it means to be a Christian. To be fully known and fully loved. So I want to ask you this morning, if it's, maybe it's been a difficult year for you, maybe a difficult past week, Things are just not going well for you. There's some stuff in your life that you're not super proud of at this moment. Like, I just feel burdened. And I wonder if some of you know that at this moment, if you are in Christ, you are fully known and you are fully loved and accepted by him. That's the, that is the good news of the gospel that you and I share. And Sojourn, I pray not only that we would experience this from God, but I pray that we would be the kind of church where people feel comfortable with being fully known and fully loved. Where we wouldn't have to come here on Sunday morning or show up at community group knowing that things are not okay, but putting a mask on so that, we th- so that people will accept us. But that we would be the type of environment where when things are not right, that you can feel free to bring those things to the table and find help because you're loved. You're accepted because of Christ, even when things aren't, aren't right. And so as it relates to this woman, I think as she experiences a God who possesses this kind of love, that's a God she wants to tell people about. And I, do, I feel the same. 
I think she was able to say, come and see the man who told me all I ever did. Because even though he knew everything about her, he loved her and he wanted to, she wanted to share this newly found love with everyone she knew. And so while the disciples are distracted from, from the mission, I think this woman found motivation to share Jesus because of his unshakable love and acceptance of her. And so that's the first question. Let's go to the next one. What help does this story provide for those of us who seem to be indifferent or disengaged from this task of sharing what we worship? The story is going to give us help in two ways. The first is going to come by way of rebuke, and the second is going to come by way of motivation or incentive. So as you hop down to verse 35, he, he begins with uh, some hard words that you and I need to hear. But then he provides some, some incentive or some inspiration for engaging in the mission uh, that we're shared, uh, that we're called to in the world. So he has a challenging correction for us and then incentive to get engaged in the mission. And so let's start with the challenging words that Jesus has for us in, in verse 30, uh, 35. He says, do you not say that there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is giving us here this forceful command as he delivers two imperatives. He says, look, lift up your eyes twice. He's saying, uh, look with different words here and twice to emphasize a point. So in the biblical languages, you didn't have an exclamation point to add emphasis. So if you really wanted to get something across, if you really wanted to uh, be, you know, say something of significance, you might repeat it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So he's rather aggressively saying to them, look, lift up your eyes. There's something really important right in front of you and you're missing it. I'm one of those people who has the bad habit at uh, red lights to uh, pull out my phone and see what's going on around the world. And uh, so, you know, my, my wife loves this. She's sitting next to me and I'll be looking at my phone and the light will turn green and she'll be like, it's green. And I'll be like, okay. No, the light is green. Yeah, sounds good. Like, dude, like people are driving by us, flicking us off. The light is green. Lift up your eyes. Like there's something really important right in front of you and you're missing it. That's, that's in essence what Jesus is, is, is telling them right here. There's something critical and it's happening right in front of your faces and you're missing it. Jesus is saying, look up your eyes. Look what's happening around you. They're, they're missing the reality that there are people all around them that need to hear about Jesus. And he's telling them that the time to tell them is right now. Jesus frequently uses the metaphor of a harvest to describe people who need to be brought to Christ. An incredible amount of work has gone into making redemption possible for them. Um, and, but but the, for them to, to experience the saving work of Jesus. And now it's incumbent upon his followers to go and make others aware of what he's done. And Jesus is showing that time is of the essence in this picture of the harvest. So if you've ever done farm work, which is maybe two of us in this room, uh, you know that, that, that uh, the, when the field produces a crop, you have a limited time to gather that produce in before it goes bad. Jesus is saying that the harvest is now, the time is now to gather people in because this moment of the harvest isn't going to last forever. There's a limited time to call people to Christ because judgment day is coming. And when that day comes, it's too late. The day of salvation is today. So would you lift up your eyes and see the critical job that's right before us? 
And I think that's a call that we need to hear as a church this morning. We, we, we have a short span of our life to expend our time and our energy and our resources for people to encounter Jesus. But much like the disciples, we often have our attention fixed elsewhere. All around us, thousands of people who need to hear the gospel are right there. And the call to lift up our eyes, the call on us is to lift up our eyes and focus our attention on them. And so I just want to ask us, are we aware of the harvest that's around us? Are we aware of the lost people who visit our church, even our community events? I was talking with a community group leader a few weeks ago, and he was just sharing that they had had a uh, event kind of at their house, and um, it was just kind of a public thing. He invited some neighbors to come along, just a time to hang out. And uh, he remembered being at that event and looking up at a couple times and seeing the neighbors that he invited while no, everyone from the church was just hanging out with their friends. They were oblivious to the fact that there were people there who don't normally come and they weren't engaging uh, with them. And I, I think this can happen to us on Sunday morning too. It can happen to me. Where we come to church and we only talk to the people we know while maybe guests or unbelievers are entirely unengaged. And I just want to say that there's nothing more toxic to our mission as a church than clickiness. That will kill our mission. And this is the natural progression of any church. It's not just us. We all have the tendency to just come to church, find the people that we normally run with, and just spend time with them while our eyes are inwardly focused, while all around us, the harvest is, is ready. It's, it's time. And so... There's a call on us to resist this, this clickiness, this inward focusedness. And I, I just think we need to hear that as a church. I think uh, we need to, to hear, um, to, to, to lift up our eyes and just to be aware of the fact that there are people all around who need Christ and the time to share him with them is limited. So I just want to lay that exhortation from Jesus just on all of us as a family this, just this morning to be encouraged in that, to have our eyes open at our community events, our picnics, all of that. Um, uh, to be aware of what's going on around us. And so, so that's, the, that's the rebuke that Jesus brings to his disciples. But, but what's the incentive? What's the motivation to engage in the task of sh the sharing the one that we worship? And John is going to show us that the motivation for engaging in this mission is the privilege of partnership. It's the privilege of partnership. And so as Jesus progresses in this discussion about working in the harvest, he's going to show us the inestimable privilege that it is of partnering with God the Father in completing his work. So if you see at verse 36, he uh, continues this analogy of the harvest. He says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Jesus is continuing the metaphor of the harvest, and he's not just discussing the crop of the harvest that needs to be brought in, but he's also using the metaphor to describe the people who are involved in bringing the harvest in. So the harvest or the produce signify the people who would be saved from their sin and brought to eternal life, but then two new characters enter the scene. There's a sower and there's a reaper, and there's a partnership between these two characters, uh, the sower prepares the field, and the reaper goes out and gets the produce. So in this illustration, God is, is being depicted as the one who sows, and the reaper are, 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 are like you and me who go out to share the gospel. We go out as fishers of men who bring in that fruit, bring in that produce uh, of all those who will believe the gospel and share an eternal life. 
But the thing that I want you to see about this partnership, the critical aspect of it, is, is in verse 36. It says that we're involved in this process of sowing and reaping together so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. That's, that's the target. That's the aim of this partnership. So God is inviting his disciples, you and me, into a partnership so that we can rejoice together. That's the privilege of partnership that ought to incentivize uh, our, our, us to be engaged in this mission. So I think we can often say stuff like, well, if God's going to do something, I'm sure he'll do it anyway. Or does he really need me to accomplish what he wants to do in the world? All the while, God is saying, I'm, I'm doing something wonderful in this world and I want you to be a part of it. I'm inviting you into the privilege of partnering with me in the greatest initiative in the universe. This cosmic plan of redeeming people and making all things new. And I want you, my people, to be a part of this with me. He probably doesn't need us, but he wants us to join in it with him. It goes back to this notion of, of joy being something that we share. We share the things that we delight in. And as God the Father is rejoicing in the redemption of his people, he's saying, I want you to share that joy with me. As Jesus says that all of heaven rejoices when a sinner turns from their life and comes back home to their father. He's saying, I want you to be a part of that celebration. We get the privilege of partnering with God and rejoicing in this great work with him. So let me try to explain this privilege of partnership like this. What are some of your fondest memories with your parents or those who raised you growing up? What are the things that you think back on from your childhood that just marked you as joyful moments together? What are the moments that you're going to think about at your parents' funeral? I, I would venture to say that it, a lot of those memories will be you guys doing something together. So I was a, a Cub Scout, so something me and my dad would do was the, be the little like wooden race car, the Pinewood Derby. Maybe some of you guys did that. And we weren't very good with woodworking tools, um, so we never won any of the races. But, but I look back on that, and that, that was a joyful experience of being something that I probably wasn't needed for. I'm sure he could have made it himself, but the privilege of partnering in something together. I think I have a tradition growing up with, with my mom. We had this like special cranberry bread that we would make every year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of kept going on since then and uh, really good bread. And I'm sure that as a seven-year-old, I did not enhance the process or make it more efficient to make this bread. But, but I look back on that. We did something together and there was this, this joy of partnering in it together. Even now with my own son, one of our favorite things to do is mow the grass together. So I have this little riding lawnmower. It's called a pony. That's the title that they use for it. And we'll, the grass will get long and, and he'll jump on there with me and we'll mow the grass together. And I assure you, he doesn't make that process more efficient. Like he's, he's grabbing the wheel and like we've got like zigzags in our yard and all of that. Like he doesn't make it easier, but it's a joy of partnering with him in, in accomplishing something together. And I think that's the essence of the motivation that, that we have in this passage. God is saying, listen, I'm doing a work in this world and I'm inviting you to be a part of it. Would you join me so that we can rejoice together in the fruit of eternal life? That's, that's the privilege of partnership that motivates us to be engaged in this gospel work. And so we've compared the woman's eagerness to share Jesus and the disciples' distraction and indifference to it. 
And we've talked about how uh, this passage helps us by way of rebuke and how uh, it motivates us through the privilege of partnership. So the last thing I want to ask is, what is the method by which God calls us to share our worship? What's the method? Um, The method that God has appointed to share our worship and thereby bring people to him is through testimony. It's through bearing witness. Now, I know when I say testimony, if you've been in church for any length of time, your mind automatically runs to people sharing kind of their life story and how God saved them, which is excellent. And that is definitely a part of of this aspect of of sharing our worship. But I don't think that's exactly what John has in mind here uh, when he uses the word testimony in verse 39. If you see it, it says, Many Samaritans believed on account of the woman's testimony. So to testify in John's gospel is to proclaim the significance of the person and the work of Jesus. John is very concerned all through his gospel uh, that, that Jesus saves people, but he does that through the witness or the testimony of his followers. To understand this better, I want to flip over to John 20 real quick. So you can turn over there with me. John 20, starting in verse 30. John in this, in this uh, verse here is going to give us his theme of why he wrote this whole gospel, this whole uh, you know, 21 or 22 chapter account. This is why he did it. In verse 30, it says, Now when Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are, written in this, uh, which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So uh, the, the point that John is making here is that life is found in Jesus's name, but access to that name is granted through the testimony of a witness. So Jesus isn't writing an autobiography here. It's John who records the events that happened in Jesus's life and what Jesus has done. And then he serves as this eyewitness testimony to then bring that information to the people who need to hear it. John is writing as a witness of what Jesus has done and thereby gives access to people, life to people. I hope I hope that makes sense. So so this theme of of testimony runs all throughout John's gospel of someone bearing witness to what Jesus has done and who he is. So you could uh, we won't turn there. But in John two, there's these two brothers, Philip and Nathaniel. And Jesus comes to Philip first and he reveals something about him to Philip, that he is the Messiah. And so instead of Jesus also wants to call Nathanael, but instead of going directly to Nathanael, he sends his brother Philip. And Philip runs to Nathanael and says, I've found the one whom the prophets and who Moses wrote about. Come and see him. Could he be the Messiah? So John goes out of the way to highlight that someone carried that information about Jesus to someone else. Right after our story here in, in, uh, in um, John 4, there's the story of a, of a Roman official's son who's healed of a terminal disease. And so the official goes to Jesus and, and asks Jesus to heal him, and Jesus does heal him. But instead of John saying that the official went back to, the son, to his son and saw that he was healed for himself... That there are witnesses that are sent from the son that go and meet the official and declare to him what Jesus has done. They, they proclaim as a witness of what has happened. 
Even at the end of the gospel, if you remember the resurrection account with, uh, with, with uh, Mary. So Jesus is, is brought back to life after he had died, paying for the sins of the world. And he reveals himself first to Mary. But do you know what he tells Mary to do? Instead of going directly to the disciples himself, Jesus says to Mary, go tell all the disciples that I'm risen. And so they believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. Some of them doubt, but they believe on account of Mary's testimony. And so as we bring it back to our story here this morning, John could have just said that Jesus went from the well to the Samaritan village and that many believed. But he goes out of his way and highlights the fact that the woman went first and shared the testimony of what he had done and who he was and that many believed on account of that testimony. And so the point that John is getting at us this morning is that Jesus is the only one who saves. But it is not his pattern to do that directly. He does it through an intermediary, through someone who bears witness, who testifies to what he's done. The gospel is news about Jesus, but that news is presented through his followers. So could Jesus just show up in someone's living room and save them if he wanted to? Yes, he could do that. But that's not the biblical pattern that we see. We see witnesses being sent out and proclaiming that. So to put it simple, salvation and eternal life are found in the name of Jesus alone. But there is not a direct flight from Jesus to those who will believe. Jesus saves through the testimony of his followers. So if someone is going to meet Jesus, by and large, it's going to happen through our proclamation of him. And as we proclaim him, as the Holy Spirit calls people to, to himself. We see it in Romans 10 when Paul is explaining how the gospel goes out. He says, um, how will they believe unless someone, uh, how will they believe unless someone preaches to them? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? And so, so Paul even is committed to this idea of that if people are going to believe the gospel, it has to come through this intermediary. Someone has to be sent who has that good news. So this may seem so simple to you, especially you've been in, in church for a long time, but I pray the weight of this is not lost on us. This seems obvious and it's so significant. We forget that if anyone in this community is going to meet Jesus, it will happen through the efforts of people like you and me. We believe that Jesus alone is the one who saves, but the instrument that he uses in that process is our witness of him. It's the gospel alone that unites people to their maker, but that gospel comes out of our mouth. And so the method that we use to share our worship is through the, the testimony of the one that we worship. And so as we wrap this up, I want to just get a little bit more practical for us on how we can go about doing this. And the first thing I just want to identify is that there may be some of you who are thinking, I don't have a really dramatic testimony, so I feel like I can't really participate in this. But as we reevaluate the term testimony, I hope that frees you up a little bit. The woman didn't, uh, did have some crazy stuff that she was redeemed from, but the emphasis of the testimony was about Jesus, not about her. So while you might not be the six-time adulterer or the drug addict or the murderer, you still have a Savior who redeemed you from sin. And maybe your sin was arrogance or, uh, or, or pride or uh, self-righteousness. But 
Jesus saved you from that, and that Jesus is worth sharing with others. And so whether you have a rough past like the, the woman at the well, or you were raised in church and you've never said a cuss word, wherever you're at on that spectrum, we're equally called to share in this testimony about what Jesus has done. And so just a few thoughts on how we can go about this. Uh, the first is just by way of invitation. And I think that's something that we all uh, can participate in. Um, it's simple, um, but you notice that the, the sharing of Jesus with this woman began with a simple invitation. All she did was say, come and see the man. So I think for us, maybe that's here on Sunday morning. Maybe that's at a community group function uh, where they might feel uh, comfortable. Maybe it's just over to dinner at your house. But one way that we go about sharing what Jesus has done is through the simple act of invitation. And so for our community group, we've decided to schedule a once a month meeting where we're not doing discussion and we're just hanging out. Uh, sometimes it'll be a party. We did a Thanksgiving one this week and it's just an opportunity to invite and welcome people in. Um, even, uh, yeah, so, so doing some sort of event like that, some kind of casual event can be helpful. Um, even, even in public when I'm out at a restaurant or something like that, sometimes I'll just be bold enough or someone I've started a conversation with and just say, hey, have you ever been to any of the, any of the churches in this area? Just that simple question. It may sound really dumbed down, but that's, that's one simple way we can begin to be engaged in this. Even with Christmas coming around, hey, Christmas is around the corner. Have you thought about attending a Christmas Eve service? Just this simple act of inviting, and I think it's all something that we can do. And my next encouragement to us would simply to be bold and to be honest. Um, I was out to lunch with someone from church here, and they felt compelled to uh, give a larger tip than normal to the waitress. And uh, as he was giving the tip to her, it was uh, some money she, um, you know, uh, he, he wanted to share with her. Hey, I just want you to know that Jesus is alive and he loves you. And so she, he hands it to her. And she, he, she looks at it and she's like, oh, is this one of those like fake gospel tract, like dollar bill things? Have you guys seen those? Like we, they, they try to present the gospel on fake money. So we disappoint people that it's not real money. And then we try to like sneak the gospel into it. Like that's, that's a terrible way. Like I don't think people appreciate that at all. But I think people appreciate just the, the simple honesty uh, and, and, and simple boldness. And so something that I, I like to say, um, you know, when I'm out in public and I've had a conversation with someone, just a simple ask like, hey, has there ever been a time in your life where you've seriously considered the claims of Jesus, uh, what Jesus did, who he claimed to be? Has there ever been a time in your life where you've thought about that? And then I kind of just roll with that conversation from there and see where it goes. And let me tell you, we're going to fumble all over ourselves. We're going to say stupid stuff. And that's okay. Like, this is something we grow in. But just, just that simple, humble boldness, to, to an honest boldness, to just bring him up. Just ask him, have you thought about him? Have you considered who he is and what he's done? And so I think that's something we can do as well. And the last thing I want to urge us to, as it relates to practicality, is that we need to be equipping ourselves for this. If, this, if we're going to lift up our eyes and, and really be engaged with what God's doing around us, we need to be equipped for it. And so maybe that looks like finding someone in the church community who does this well. You recognize that about them. Just spend some time with them. Make it a point to, to go and just learn how they go about it. That's been very helpful for me through the years. Just learn how do you, how do you bring this up in, a, in an honest and bold way and, and, and all of that. So find someone. But the other thing that I really, really want to call us to as a church is the Disciple Making Movement Conference that's coming up um, uh, in a couple weeks. And we'll have it in the announcements. But 
If this is something that you struggle with, that is a great opportunity to at least come and begin engaging with it and begin learning practically from people who've been missionaries their whole life in doing this. But, but that's a great opportunity for us as a church family to jump in and be trained in this. So I want to call you guys to that, to really fill that class. And even if this is something that is terrifying for you and, and just the thought of sharing the gospel is, 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 is very intimidating, come to that meeting and I think you'll find it to be very helpful. Um, so we need to be equipping ourselves for this, for this mission. Um, so we wrap, as we wrap this up, this passage ends with um, the, te- the people of the town proclaiming, this is indeed the Savior of the world. And as we come forward to communion, we're essentially proclaiming the same thing. And not that he's just the Savior of the world broadly, but that he's our Savior personally. And that his blood and that was spilled, and that his body was broken so that we could be reconciled to God. And as we talk about being engaged in his mission, his acceptance of us is never based on how well we're doing with this. It's based on his broken body and his shed blood. And so as we come forward to the table, that's a reminder that it's not about what we do for God, it's what he's done for us in Christ. And so I want to just invite us to celebrate the reality that this is indeed the Savior of the world, and he died for us as we take communion. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you wouldn't proclaim for yourself that he is indeed the savior of the world. I want to invite you to make him your savior this morning. And what he, he calls you to do is to turn from a life of sin, turn from a life of ignoring God and living without him, and to embrace the reality that Jesus died for you. To put your faith in the finished work of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And so as we come forward to take communion, I'd invite you to hang out in your seat and pray through that. And listen, if you want to talk about that anymore, I'll be up here afterwards. I don't have anywhere to be. I would be happy to sit and discuss this with you further, to discuss why it is so significant that these people proclaim that he is the savior of the world. So please feel free to come and grab me afterwards. But as we take communion, just hang out in your seat and and, and think through this time. Um, So as we take communion, we've got two tables in the back, two in the front. And uh, come forward when you're ready with that. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we struggle with this. Uh, If we're honest, I struggle with this. um, That we have our mind focused on other things. Um, But first of all, I just want to thank you that your acceptance of us is not based on how well we do with this. And that you don't need us, Lord, but you're inviting us into one of the most beautiful realities in all of the world. Thank you, Lord, that you are the Savior. You are the promised one who came and who's delivered us. Would you stir up in our church a passion to share this reality with the world around us, to be engaged in this mission with you, to be the kind of people who delight in you so much that we automatically want to share you with others. Lord, I pray for those in our midst this morning that don't know you. I pray that you would even stir in them now, that you would show them what you've done. You would show them the marvelous reality of how you've sent your son to die in their place so that they could be accepted. We praise you for that, Lord. Make this a church on mission with you. Help us to make an impact in this world around us. We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.